You are listening to an Unlocked New Models episode. Less than half of our interviews, discussions, audio dramas, or monologues are ever made public. To access all of our content, or to join the discussions in our Discord server, visit patreon.com slash newmodels, or newmodels.substack.com. Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we talk with artist John Raffman, who visited Berlin for the opening of two shows, Egregores and Grimoires at Schinkel Pavilion and Counterfeit Post at Spruth Magers. Raffman's work is considered post-internet, a category that emerged in the late aughts to describe the artists whose practice engages with the emergent aesthetics, subcultures, and technologies of Web2 and their sociological impacts. The Ninth Berlin Biennale, curated by New York-based collective DIS and opening in the summer of 2016, included the who's who of the post-internet glitterati and garnered a polarized response. But the election of Donald Trump that fall, assisted by the meme warfare visibly waged on social media, evoked an even more conservative backlash from German critics, some of whom believed that the entire medium of internet memes was to blame for the rise of right-wing populism. Naturally, this had a chilling effect on the post-internet art scene in Berlin. But now, six years later, post-internet artists are back in Berlin, with simultaneous solo shows opening across the city. With John, we investigate what changed, what stayed the same, and what may still be to come from post-internet art in an unquestionably post-internet world. I'm Lil Internet, joined by my co-host Carly Busta. Our guest is John Raffman. Let's get into it. Welcome to New Models, episode number 52, Mall Hammer 40K, with John Raffman. We're here today with the artist John Raffman, who has not one, but two shows currently on view in Berlin. Uh, We're so happy he's made the time to stop by the studio. Just very briefly, I would say that your work, my favorite line, I think this is something you said somewhere, was that you're exploring the impact of technology on consciousness. Mm -hmm. I I like that framing Mm -hmm. a lot. Your shows right now are on view at the Schinkel Pavilion, a show called Egregores and Grimoires. And there's another show at Spruth Mager's Excellent Gallery called Counterfeit Posts. So we're going to speak a little bit about this work, but hopefully also get into some other territory. Oh, and also, I mean, if it's necessary to mention it, but you've also done some interesting like crossover commercial works. For instance, the fall, winter 2019 Balenciaga presentation, which was just totally a mind-boggling digital spectacle. So welcome, John. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad to be on one of the big... Eight? <laughs> you're my first. I think you're my first. Unlike Dean Kissick, I haven't done the round yet. Uh, oh, really? You're kicking it off with new models. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> That's an honor. <laughs> well, it always is best if you start in Berlin with the pods. Yeah. The highest quality the, right the here. The podcast capital of the world. Yeah. <laughs> I think it is. And right now, Joshua Citarella, Matt and Holly are all, all in Berlin. Yeah. So it really is at least this weekend. So I guess I wanted to start off with this opening question of, do you think we are in the age of the egregore? Ooh. Actually, wait, before that, yeah. let's get into egregore because it's a, it's yeah. a trending word. Okay, and yeah. also, yeah, maybe I'm a little definition would be helpful for yes. anyone who's yeah. not aware. True. Do you want to give the definition? Sure. I mean, it's a mystical term, but it's very much an internet mystical term, yeah. just like tradcast is very much an internet yeah. <laughs> traditional Catholic term. Uh, I'm not aware of the context in which it was originally used. I'm only aware of that it's hearkening back to medieval esoteric thinking. And that's, for me, it's at least is broadly an entity or a being that a community creates that then comes to influence it. You know, in a way, there's so many things. You can even bring the Gregor concept into ideological thinking. But really, in this case, it's more in the realm of esoteric. So it's, imagine you have some spirit entity that you as a community almost will into existence that mm-hmm. then comes to dominate you or affect you. So, I mean, broadly, there's so many things on the internet can be considered Gregors. I mean, and in life, it's almost like you can reify a concept to the point where it's like real, even though it's like constructed by a community and yeah. human beings, but then it comes to dominate or infect, like have a very complex relationship with the community that constructed 
that would you agree with that yeah. definition yeah. do you have anything to contribute I mean yeah I think of it like almost like a collective poltergeist I think the yes. idea is though is that's like it's a I guess in the original like occult meaning it would yeah. be considered as a separate entity yeah. that manifested from the collective yeah. consciousness right. of all these yeah. people so it seems right. to have freedom so, but that's right. arguable it's like you know atheists do you really want to go up against the egregore of God <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, that is true yeah. like, um, it's also just a cool ass word that's yeah. why yeah. I like it Egregore and, and grimoire. So is grimoire. Yeah. So is grimoire. <laughs> Do you want to give a quick definition of grimoire? I mean, that's simple. I think that's just a, a magical book uh-huh. or of spells. Yeah. Or usually evil spells, in I, my opinion. They also became this kind of like in also, early yeah. like pulp yeah. media. Grimoires were like big sellers in the mm. early yeah. days of, of print, you know? For sure. They were kind of like the edgelordy, an edgelordy genre. It was like a comic genre. book. Like it took that kind of psychic space where it was like talking about impossible or taboo things, and fantasy. There's lots or, of things that claim to be like, you know, biblical, apocrypha, yeah. or like, you know, the spell book of King Solomon. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's lots of stuff of sigils and demonology. Yeah. And, right. Yeah purported historical scripts from ancient yeah. Egypt that were written right. by some, yeah. you know. I think there's just this deep desire to re-enchant the world, yeah. especially after a lot of failures to <laughs> create meaning and utopian projects having failed and the entire emancipatory imagination being impoverished by many failures. In our case, I feel like in our communities, it's the left in general. Yeah. And, you know, so the reactions to that, that create a layer on top of reality is way more interesting and sexy and narratively just rich. I mean, it's interesting to think about grimoire and their relationship to text in a time when text, especially on the left, has been this like suffocating dominant thing. Yeah. People pointing back to 20th century text as proof that X is right yeah. and Y is wrong or whatnot. So to think about a more magical kind of language yeah. existing. Also, though, you know, the internet gave like a GUI to the noosphere, but it also. Yeah. Gave a, I mean, magic and like occult practices were always about imagining the world of symbols as having actual agency and powers. Yeah. And so the internet also, you can also <laughs> imagine, is like a GUI for the world of magic, like uh, for the world of wielding symbols to affect agency and outcomes and effects. Graphic user interface. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the 2016, I feel like, was the height of mean magic and this right. really feeling yeah. the sense that whether it's true or not, that means could alter reality, you know, that you can meme things into existence. And it's true. I mean, Pizzagate was memed into existence in a way so many things were. I feel like a Gregor is less politically driven than meme magic Mm. is. I mean, the Nazis were memed into existence, essentially, right? I mean, the swastika used to be on, like, postcards people would send to each Mm. other, like, oh, this ancient Asian symbol of luck, I hope it brings you a... Good fall this 1915, you know? <laughs> so I think they were really deliberately using mimetic symbols and various things from theater and mass media and occultism to create their movement. So I mean, the movement came out of a certain set of historical conditions and. Well, that like, too. You know, but if you look like at the some, aesthetic pack and right, the way they right, like, right, sort right. of scaled. You can see the Third Reich is the egregor of like that energy they or something. They definitely believed in. I mean, German mysticism For sure. had a long history yeah. of. Gregor's. I mean, any like Celtic Twilight, you kind of create a history for your culture, whether it's real or not, and then it becomes real. You know, right. like that. A lot of writers in the throughout the beginning of the 20th century, late 19th century, especially if they were part of some sort of nationalist movement of self determination, required, and much of their culture had been destroyed by whatever colonialist power. They had to recreate. You know, you know, by bringing back Gaelic and creating totally. national myths, you know. It the Lederhosen and the, yeah. you know, Oktoberfest, yeah. seeing as we're now in fall, was absolutely that, like, yeah. constitution of a national identity. There's a Wagner exhibition at the Deutsches Historisches Museum, which is fascinating, if, especially if you didn't grow up in the German pedagogical mm-hmm. system, because you realize what a fantasy Germany itself was and how True. in the 19th century it was very much about constituting this fantasy of Germany, right, as a unified state. And uh, the makings of this, like, Third Reich energy were already set, I would say, in the 19th century. 
Anyway, now we find ourselves in the next century. And, Sorry uh, to interrupt because I always because yeah. I was just talking about this and I didn't read this and I don't know that much. What is the fourth turning? Do you, I feel like just because I'm remembering, oh, yeah. I'm thinking about it, it's an attractive narrative. I mean, do, I should not know? have this be on recording because I'm gonna like get it wrong. But it's yeah. this idea that there's these almost like Jungian ages that yeah. we go through, and yeah. it's like there's the age of destruction and the age of building, then there's yeah. the age of profiting, then there's the age of decline, yeah. and then you sort of go through these cycles and they're inevitable. And I mean, according yeah. to the thesis, you see yeah. them everywhere. And so we're now in this moment of chaos that is yeah. necessary to dislodge the 20th century structures. Okay. That's uh, that's my understanding of it. But I forget the I've guy who wrote wondered. the book. Also known as the Kali Yuga. Yeah, that's another, uh-huh. that's another, I don't know if it's an egregor, but yeah. a reactionary, sexy politic. Yeah. But I mean, now that we're, something we think about a lot is this phenomenon of the digital local, which, yeah. I mean, you already had the makings of it through music subculture, fandoms or whatnot that were like yeah. these international identities that were located around like a particular, well, a particular culture. But now with Discord culture yeah. and Reddit and, you know, the chans or whatever, it seems like this idea of the egregore, it's almost like a necessary component of these digital local communities mm-hmm. and that we're increasingly organized around them because our nation states, I mean, they're all sort of crumbling or you feel you can't really intervene on them, but there are these kind they of also, autonomous... Nation states also feel like old timey, it's like there's Apple and there's Google and there's the United States of America, but the United States of America is kind of like an old timey version of like a <laughs> giant tech company or something. Except for, I guess, now post Russia's invasion of Ukraine, these countries are now having new value and being able to regulate like energy flows. So their status is now in the popular consciousness, slightly different. But yeah, I guess this is the question. Where is identity formation happening mm-hmm, now? Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the main things I investigate, I think, in an age of fragmentation yeah. like you're talking about. Uh, in a broad sense, in the 20th century, youth cultures used to define themselves with the music they yeah. listened to or so many things that were tied more to mainstream media, top-down media, which no longer exists. Or at least maybe they came from the grassroots, but eventually they penetrated onto somewhat of a mass scale and then Kurt Cobain kills himself or something. (laughs) Uh, Now, as we all know, I think music is not as much of a force that, you know, youth might construct their identities around. I think even video games are more of a powerful cultural force, but that's still very fragmented compared to what it used to be. Also, in an age where I feel like the self over the course of the 20th century, since the age of the bourgeois novel, where it did feel like there was a very coherent self, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of interiority, things moved at a slightly different pace, even though it was a modern city, there was a sense, I think, you know, if you read 1,000-page bourgeois novels and you kind of feel like the development of a somewhat coherent self, mm-hmm. now I feel like how much of us are constructing our reality and how much are we being constructed is a huge question for me. And a lot of my characters are dealing with, in the case of Punctured Sky, the narrative's very past is thrown into question. You know, we create narratives to construct our identities. So we're basically creating little stories, right, that make up all the, our memories. And when our memories themselves start being thrown into question, it's just one way in which, you know, the self, how do you construct a coherent self? I mean, there's many ways in which I'm looking at what is even subjectivity anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I still am a humanist at my core, but in a way I'm dealing with, you know, how do we deal with a self that is more and more difficult to actually feel like an individual. Yeah. Uh, like a fully formed one, at least, you know. Yeah. And, and then with the subcultures, I feel like because that's the case, that things are so fragmented, you do kind of need to find these little communities that in a way become virtual bubbles that develop their own egregors, their own hierarchies, their own vocabularies and social structures. And oftentimes your neighbor could be part of another. And this is on a broad scale with like Fox News and CNN and a small scale with being a tradcath versus being a new modelian. Uh, <laughs> you know, and they interact with each other, but they have very different concepts of what reality is. And that's just the reality. You know, we feel like you've heard this a million times before, but you know, we really do live in a post-truth world where there is no longer 
I mean, there's barely any consensus of what reality is. Well, I mean, there's barely any consensus of what space reality is happening exactly. in. That, I mean, exactly. That's what I mean. And yeah. something your work has always done so well is it's spatialized the various registers in which we construct reality, like yeah. the video gaming space versus an online space versus an offline space versus, I mean, we have multiple identities online. It used to be in this 19th century bourgeois sphere yeah. that you're talking about. You have maybe a personal life and maybe a professional life yeah. and maybe an interior. And that's kind yeah. of it. Maybe you're separated yeah. three ways. Maybe yeah. you're a certain way in church. Sure. That's about it. But then as we move forward, I mean, and especially in the past 20 years, like we're fragmented into like 35 individuals mm -hmm. continuously, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't always have control over when, I mean, Facebook was this crisis, right? Where you formed yourself for your peers and suddenly yeah. that you was being presented to your boss and there was a real crisis of who that identity was and a lot of paranoia about who you're presenting. But now we're constructing ourselves across all these different reality spaces and also those those spaces are forming us in ways that are totally beyond our control. And your work engages with that in like a super interesting way. Through narrative, through personal narrative. I think that's yeah. what, what I'm interested in is kind of entering the mind of contemporary consciousness, but using the language that I grew up with, which is oftentimes tied to video games and pop culture and the internet. And that's yeah. kind of, the artists have always searched for symbolic languages that have some sort of sense of universality. I don't have the level of knowledge of the classics as, let's say, Ezra Pound did, obviously. <laughs> but I do know about, you know, Bonk's Adventure or <laughs> Sonic the Hedgehog or, yeah. you know, the Saturday morning cartoons. But I also know a little bit about Shakespeare and Chaucer. So I feel like it's, <laughs> it, that's very valuable to have. But, you know, to communicate with my peers in Zoomers. And also it's a rich language, that of the culture I grew up with. Whether yeah. it's impoverished or not, it's actually very rich as a visual language. Or it's fun, you know, because I like mixing humor, irony and tragedy and romance and like you guys do. And I feel like that's what I do. I take that language and I try to talk about the universal things that artists have always talked about. Right. But in an age where it's harder and harder to get a universal discourse. Well, exactly. I mean, yeah. Ezra Pound had a pretty yeah. clear idea of who his audience was and what yeah. their common references were. And they yeah. probably were Shakespeare and the yeah. classics. Yeah. But I mean, my guess is that for your audience, drawing on... 1980s and 90s yeah. and early aughts pop culture yeah. is going to be a better comment. For sure. But right? even, somehow like it's still comment. people who didn't even experience it somehow, whether they don't know, catch all the references. I feel like something where well, you can tell deep down inside, even if you don't understand the references always of an artist or like their visual language, if it's being honest in its communication, I feel like you can get mm -hmm. the idea, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm not trying to just make something that's like for an in audience, which is what I think is a lot of the problem of the art world in general, that it's so insular and mm -hmm. it really makes it ghettoizes to the point of being in, irrelevant yeah. anymore. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. a huge problem. I mean, the internet also is a relatively recent closed system. Yeah. Like there's a certain type of image practice that I think your work engages with somewhat. And also like Ben Ditto, who we talked to recently, is practice engages with, which is kind of like the darker, shocking, cursed images that have floated around mm. the internet for a very long time and still pop up now and then. And I think it's actually the type of image and sort of aggregating them is, is something that's as we've moved into the terms of service and algorithmic moderation age is, is starting to feel like it's being lost a bit. But those are deep archetypes that do resonate with anyone who's been online. I mean, there's a certain degree of the limited and shared global history yes. of being online mm -hmm. in terms of just powerful images that have existed over the past 30 years that people have mm -hmm. been uploading things to the yeah, internet. That's why I like using them so much because yeah. they do have like a potency, a je ne sais quoi, something that a cursed image has. It's literally, yeah, like imbued with some sort of it's in the cursed grimoire. magic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, and because it can become a shitpost, it's like the survival of the fittest on 4chan. Those images are the best of the best, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the cursed yeah. of the cursed. A quick 
process question. I mean, your work is filled with these sigils. I mean, there's so yeah. many, like the empty blockbuster or yeah, yeah. the, well, not AMC cinema, which would be the meme stock, but the Regal yeah. cinema, the detritus around a computer. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's filled with these sigils. I'm curious when you're making your work, what's your process of indexing these? Do you have like a sort of method of just like every time you're sort of reminded of one, you jot it yeah. down or you keep a mood board or mm. just in general, yeah. what's your process of narrative construction? Because yeah. you works on all these different yeah. The Rathman canonical yeah. Image, yeah. Yeah. images, how is I it mean, I, yeah. I think I, I feel like I've spent most of my adult life and even late teenage years being obsessed with post-industrial Okay. I mean, I think that's so many mo- of us mo- most. Yeah. yeah, I think we all can relate that that abandoned blockbusters, dead malls, yeah. are the especially for I think people growing up in North America, the like you said, sigils. They're the haunted mm-hmm. spaces. So I don't even know I, those things just come out about. I don't even need to archive those. They mm-hmm. just they're always there for me. And now I can literally construct them out of nothing with prompts. Yeah, you know? exactly. So I don't even need the archive. Mm-hmm. In a way, I can create my own new one. And I'm using a software to like archive things called Eagle. Very useful. But uh, every film begins with a different process. I do like the method for writing, especially just taking quotes from everywhere and never citing them mm-hmm. so that you know you forget who where the source comes from and then it's yours yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then with punctured sky it was just a very conscious attempt to okay i want to make a creepypasta mm-hmm. film mm-hmm. i mean creepypastas are such a rich new genre that is tied to the oldest genre which is folklore and urban legends so Maybe also, could you just give a quick like yeah. so, uh, frame so of what it is? So, Punctured Skies about this video game I used to play as a youth, a computer game that I was obsessed with with my friend. And a few years ago, my friend contacted me out of the blue. I had we drifted ways, and he said that he can't find ev- any evidence that this game existed. And I said, no, there's no possibility of that because it's like especially retro games, they always have some fan page dedicated to them. But then when I got home, I searched for it and I couldn't find anything. And so it kind of begins with that premise of like, how could something disappear from the historical archive now that everything is recorded? But it also shows the world and where, like, yes, everything's recorded, but everything also is forgotten instantly, mm-hmm. especially the layers of pop cultural detritus, which are my favorite. Abandoned blockbusters, dead malls, and obscure Japanese video games <laughs> that n- nobody, you know, the more obscure, the more forgotten the cultural product, the more I'm interested in it. So even just 50 years of video games, imagine how many video games are completely forgotten. That's cool to me. That's what what inspires me. And I'm always just interested in memory and how technology has transformed the way we remember. And I actually don't like to say actually it's the technology that's transformed because that kind of makes things deterministic as if like technology is this egregor outside force that has like some power over us. I think it's not that because that just literally makes us into objects and the technology has the agency. I feel like the technology is reflecting transformations that's already occurred and oftentimes made transparent by the way the technology seemingly is what's transforming the way we remember. Like the photograph, Krakauer, who was Adorno's teacher and the first person to write a theory of film, talks about how the photograph completely seems to have transformed memory, right? Because you, if you remember something, you don't remember all the trash and the details that are in an image. Like you can see like a little Kleenex or toy in the background. You would never remember that, but a photograph captures that. Uh-huh. And then, but he then does a complex argument of how that actually represents a change that had in a way already occurred and was represented philosophically in Kant with the mm-hmm. uh, critique of pure reason, but I won't mm-hmm. get into that. But th- there, there's, the photograph is a great example, right, yeah, of, yeah. Tra- the, of a memory. Yeah. And now the internet. And imagine, I didn't grow up, thank God, in a time where I could have a social media account when I was 12, 13. <laughs> but come on, how does that affect yeah. your own history? One thing I like about that film in particular yeah. is that you take the viewer through these various different spaces. At first... Yeah. You are, you hear the narrator's voice, but you don't see 
any body correlated to it. And you're in one kind of animation language. But at a certain point, not to give a spoiler, yeah. but at a certain point, the yeah. narrator has to go by uh, GTA 5 oh, yeah, and then enter into yeah. the game and meet another character in yeah. the game. And yeah. suddenly you see an emanation of the narrator as the character <laughs> that they are in GTA 5. Yeah. And you just totally suspend disbelief. You just yeah. immediately, you don't even think about yeah. it as a character in a game. And then the narrator leaves the game and goes onto the dark web. And you're in all these different informational psychic spaces yeah. with the narrator. And it's kind of like a grand adventure through no. these different realms. I have a strong spatial memory and thinking about memories as tied to spaces when then yeah. those spaces just disappear or you can't yeah. access them that, again. Yeah, that's a huge you thing know. theme in my work. I mean, like I spent years exploring Second Life, right? Right. And now that's a good example of a way in which things can completely vanish, right? Yeah. I've spoken about this before. Like the ancient Rome has ruins that have lasted 2,000 years plus. Second life has spaces where people have literally spent, it's been around since 2003, yeah. right? Half their lives, let's say. You know, I log in every now and then to check on old favorite different parcels of land and they don't exist anymore and there's no archive of them. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure somebody's optioned this idea already and maybe it even exists as a <laughs> film. But like there's tons of MMORPGs that have been shut down. And kids, I mean, not even kids, people have spent their entire most important years, psychic lives in these spaces, you know, with people they've never physically met, but like spent months and years going on raids. And then they just shut down because the corporation, it's not yeah. making a profit anymore for whatever reason. And those places just literally, it's like true Armageddon. Yeah. Uh, it's like a Carthage being wiped off the face of the earth. I mean, not to reduce the material reality yeah. of being like a refugee or a migrant, yeah. obviously like way, you know, like yeah, yeah. many orders of, you know, severity yeah. higher, but that's a very contemporary experience, yeah. whether you're experiencing it in a dead gaming space or whether you're physically like your home is bombed. Uh, you're feeling that's an yeah. experience that everybody has some proximate understanding yeah. of. Which is interesting. It's homelessness. I mean, yeah. I feel like we do on one level as a society have this homelessness. Yeah. Um, like, and Dream Journal and Minor Damon, they're odysseys. A lot of these films are odysseys, but there's no place to return to because mm -hmm. there's no home. Right, you know, they're just right. literally, we're just drifting. Yeah, we all uh, need new alarm, through, whereas Christopher Glendron Thomas, so we can oh, just yeah, go house sure, to house to house, sure, right? Sure. <laughs> but that is a form of a homelessness too, right? It, it is, is just right. Like, yeah, the venture um, economy. So it's interesting, like, especially if our worlds are virtual and they can just literally evaporate without any trace because they're digital. It's just another part of the human condition that yeah. is important, I think, to explore. It does give another raison d'etre for meme stocks, though. I mean, you wonder why something like GameStop or AMC or Bed Bath & Beyond, these kind of whatever spaces of suburbia like, yeah. became completely monumental as markers of like, well, I lived near, I went to yeah. this blockbuster, Bed Bath & Beyond is like part of my suburban landscape. Yeah. I have a relationship to that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not really sure this is a bit of just like pop philosophizing, no, but, but it, like It's true, maybe it's like ancestor worship or something. Or something, like, right? Like yeah. These like yeah. icons of the way things used to be and the nostalgia yeah. for them. And yeah. then they're making offerings right. of yeah. money to yeah. them. And then, yeah, exactly. I guess then there's for also sure. a, a, a profit incentive <laughs> right. too. But still, yeah. They're, yeah. they're offering, you for know. For some they, people. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's still interesting that, yeah, they are archetypes of a past. Right. Uh, like that's a gaming space in a sense. Like the suburbia strip malls of like the 90s and early aughts where all those businesses yeah. were like sold out because of whatever their financial structure was or whatever. Yeah. And those game spaces, IRL gaming spaces, were just like left to rot. Yeah. And so then one pines for those monuments to return in some capacity. Yeah. So they value them via meme stocks. I mean, maybe that's not exactly right, but there's something in that relationship to its valuation. Yeah. And, but what's interesting is they're like corporate spaces, just like the shopping mall is, not, is yeah. a private space, right? Yeah. So you have these virtual worlds that are owned by private corporations that cease to exist 
for whatever reason, bankruptcy. So you, it's like a relationship different from a nation state. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a corporate controlled virtual world that yeah. is your home. I mean, and during that time, maybe less so now, but one's identity formation was so much through connecting with brands. You used to walk into a retail space like Gap or J. Crew or whatever, and you had that moment of transformation yeah. when you went yeah. into their like constructed space. That's less the case now, of course, in the time of yeah. Shein and whatever, but it's really the death of that. Yeah. It's interesting. We've witnessed the death of that pretty early on in my life, relatively speaking. And then I witnessed the death of hipsterdom, yeah. which is like the next level, which is like being an expert on some niche thing, totally. which is not yeah. too easy. So yeah. like, what's the point of being like, yeah, like having like a collection of some obscure vinyl, yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, no. And so now you have these little discords. Yeah. <laughs> and so once those discords die, I mean, again, if your discords erased, it literally just, yeah. if discord shuts down your server, like that's an entire reality destroyed. Yeah. But um, we can also talk about the show, it's Bruce, which is related to everything. Because those course, are, yeah. I mean, I was trying to create characters that were very hyper contemporary and mm, representative yeah. of different delusions, brain worms, and sometimes <laughs> just maybe have good points, but it manifests in a way that feels like it's heavily influenced by the structure of our world and the internet or what have you. Different paranoias we all have to different degrees. But, but do, I want to hear your comments because <laughs> honestly, one thing we're all lacking as artists and especially the post-internet generation was good criticism. And because mm -hmm. of that, it was able to be reduced. And actually, I have a question for you guys. Have you noticed the artist showing right now? Oh, we were going to ask this yeah. one of our questions yeah. as well. It's I literally mean, all post-internet I know, but artists. nobody's using post-internet, which shows yeah, what that... what are they using? Nothing yet, but... Uh -huh. uh, Just to say it, it's... So you're showing at Schinkel and Spruthmagers, yeah. along with Anna Udenberg, who I think yeah. we could also say is like... For sure, in, she was... You know, me and her were like the, this... Biennials. I mean, it's oh, basically right, exactly. the, the disbiennial yeah, trying <laughs> to, uh, like, maybe we can finally resolve some of these unfinished questions <laughs> that were, I mean, I don't know, I can't remember all the critiques, but, but yeah. post-internet was a bad word. It was, that was the apex and then it became somewhat of a bad word, partly because it was being reduced to the aesthetic of corporate accelerationist. Yeah clean like some of what this magazine was or Timor Sikkin, which I feel like I never fit that. No, uh, no, it doesn't make sense label, at all. You know, even though I'm post-internet moment artist. So maybe now we've transcended that reductionist view and no longer need the label. But at the same time, it just shows that nothing since 2016 really emerged because yeah. it was just an era of like reactionary portraiture and you know it's kind of bogged down by ideology and I mean, I think the short version of why that critique of BB9 that was curated by DIS, especially as it hit here in Germany, which is kind of funny because 2016 was like a good four years after the like, height, like the, the height. true, like, the, right, which was like 2012, yeah, was which was like was the full, moment that like the internet that's had always broke. What happens. But no, I mean, interestingly, when I first came to Berlin in 2014, Kunstwerke is sort of headquarters for the Berlin Biennale. The internet speed was so slow that all these like very beautiful flash sites that DIS had developed for the Biennial couldn't run on the local Wi-Fi because you couldn't get a signal that was fast enough to load them on your phone. So I think that we should also keep in mind that Germany's been a little bit slower when it comes to like these technological mm -hmm. changes. But really the reason for that blowback, I think, was that at the time, I don't know, the people who were running the magazines and teaching at the universities were in this Gen X mindset that left the internet, refused to get on social media, and thought that was the way they thought that the they G were, could still be put back in the did. bottle. They did. They really did, and they were clinging to their Frankfurt School critique of media, saying this is bad, this leads to fascism, and therefore we're going to resist it and really make it a purity mission or something. Mm -hmm. And so that BNLA was dead in the water critically for them. So they and they layered it on with this critique that really didn't match what the work actually was doing. Mm -hmm. They really missed how it was being received. 
They have no consciousness of the internet, how it even interfaced with what the norm was. So I think that that whole pushback against it had to do with a fear of being prematurely, so they thought, dislodged from the positions of power that they'd finally stepped into. And now I think, I mean, I'm not sure why. I think because post-COVID, everyone, they finally they all finally had to spend online. some time yeah. online. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and they realized, oh, wow, these quote, quote, post-internet artists really were distilling something important in this. I mean, and this art week is basically just a nostalgia for the good old days of BB9. Yeah, Katya Novitskova at Kropotiskani, Timur Sikun and Mariana Simet at Societe. I guess Timur show opens a little bit later. Ed Rachel, Atkins. Sorry, Ed Atkins, sorry, at Bordelotti, right? Bunny Rogers Bunny, at Eden, Eden, I think. I don't know. Yeah, Bunny Rachel Rogers. Exactly. It's also so ironic. It was called like post-internet art when it really it was just like pre-internet art or like <laughs> just internet art. Like there was no post. Like the, I think the post those means like post the ubiquity. Like it's right. like it's that's not right. like after the internet. It's like after the internet Arrived. is like ubiquitous. Yeah. Uh, it, it's kind of like postmodern. Well, no, but postmodern is really like after. after yeah. Yeah. Well, well, that's all. How I these thought it was yeah. net art and then post-net art. Well, it's also oh, that post-net right? art, and this is the other critique, is that we sold out by trying to conform to the gallery system by making objects, <laughs> by right. forcing, oh, forcing right. things. I mean, that, anyways. It, There's interesting market critique that one could yeah, bring into play it's, here. It's, but what would be interesting to speak about right now, since we have a limited amount of time, would be yeah. the actual technologies that you use in your yeah. work. And like, you don't have to speak for other quote, quote, post yeah. artists, but um, at a moment when every day there's a headline, like GPT-3 is going to displace all creatives or like the emergence of GAN art is going to totally change what it means to be a visual yeah. artist. And one thing I've loved about quote, quote, post-net art, is that it's always embraced whatever the, like, new gimmick technology is Mm -hmm. in this, like, curious and kind of flat-footed way. And it's always really cringe, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, let's do, like, a... Post-cringe. It's (laughs) post-cringe. Yeah, exactly, post-cringe. Maybe that's the way to say it. But by immediately bringing it in and, like, with the embarrassment that maybe a Gen X artist would have in leaning into this new tech. There's also a way of being like, yeah, but my practice is completely not threatened by this. This is a new tool. I'm just going to see the weird, ugly things it does and deal with it. There's not like a fear of it. There's always an embrace of it. Exactly. That's the core to it. That's the core. I mean, that actually comes from NetArt, the second gen. Guthrie Lonegren wrote a little essay with a funny, cute little default chart. And it was kind of comparing Net art 1.0 to 2.0 which is kind of gen x to millennial net art and like you said the gen x mentality is more like fuck the man let's take down the system using our technical means of like being able to create viruses and bring down the government and big banks blah 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 while what attracted me to net art when i was looking for a vital corner of the culture industry or just culture in general was that it embraced techno because I'm not a techie. I, I really don't have many techie skills. I really just try to use technology the way Francis Ford Coppola said. He said, in the future, a fat girl from Ohio with that camcorder is going to be the next Beethoven. <laughs> and I feel like that's what is the most exciting thing about the internet and democratization of these texts is as an artist and a lot of my peers, we were using the technology like your average person would. And that's what made it exciting is that it was an explosion of content, true Cambrian explosion of content, and then later in identities. And that's what inspired us. I mean, it also poses an existential question to what it means to be a fine artist, right? right? It's like, I'm more interested in what this fat girl in Ohio is doing, what this person writing Charmander erotic fiction, <laughs> like Pokemon fanfic, that's more interesting to me than yeah. like most art exhibitions I go to. And, and so what does that mean for the artist? Why am I special, right? right. Just because I am trained in the ways to signal, you know, right. being, right, and right, also right. just being connected to the right people. Anyways, I think that's what really 
differentiated this generation of using technology. If that's what I, I really don't even know if it's like technology becomes this fetishization of this word that doesn't even mean anything because right. like everything is a technology. Is technology. So like, you know, right. these technologies are just extensions of us and that's how we communicate, how we forge identities now to the point where we don't even notice them. Yeah. I mean, you know, especially if you're a Zoomer or an alpha, you know, you're literally, <laughs> you're literally, yes. <laughs> it's just like a part of you. Yeah. You know? So that's what I'm interested in. It's like, what's that doing? They're forms of expression. They're forms of how we structure our world and construct ourselves. And that's what I like about this form of net art or post-internet mm-hmm. is that we're not, the language is that of the people, you know, in yeah. a way. It's not some expert. I mean, in some ways, that was the great thing that PostNet anticipated. It's not that they're so technocentric, technophilic. It's that they're using technology the way people in middle America anywhere are using technology. And yet still bringing this je ne sais quoi, Gertian, artist, genius, something to that matrix. I mean, it's sometimes, sometimes, maybe. (laughs) But I mean, you know, Ryan and Lizzie literally moved to Ohio to use camcorders to make like schizo films. They created a language that was like a hybrid of reality TV, his own thing and the internet and yeah. like I mean it's basically foresaw TikTok you know yeah, it's in a way totally. prophetic I wish uh, there was a TikTok not run by the Chinese government yeah. but by <laughs> Ryan and Lizzie yeah. that would be amazing okay so I also just wanted to talk about gore and mm-hmm. I feel like your work has always like had a little bit of it but mm-hmm. in your most recent work there's a ton of it yeah. and I opened up old books on cinema transgression and I'm like mm-hmm. oh this feels mm-hmm. so much like this 1980s stock market time mm-hmm. when then you still had like Richard Kern and David Wonorowitz and Nick Zed making like please kill me in these films Mm-hmm. that were like really gory mm-hmm. but then I was also at the same time you're talking about the film Minor Damon oh sorry but actually all of them I mean yeah. also your D-Gen Z yeah. like this is yeah. a really amazing character who like a sad guy who gets yeah. like duped by some get rich quick hypnotist mm. wakes up like 15 years later and is like yeah. a slave who tries to pay for like gamer juice and realizes it's tied to shit coin or whatever yeah. that crashes and, and reminded me so much of Nick Zed's old comedy But um, as I was looking, I've been following the CFO of Bed Bath & Beyond committed suicide from the, like, you know, very sad. But, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond, one of these meme stocks and this guy, Ryan Cohen, he had a 10% stake in Bed Bath & Beyond. He's a CEO of GameStop and he dumped it all in one day for a $60 million profit. Gustavo Arnal was like the CFO. He also let go of his chairs, but maybe it was because he knew the inevitable yeah. was there. Who knows? Anyway, it's really tragic. A lot of people lost a lot of money. And I was like, oh my God, this is not cinema transgression that John's doing. It's cinema verite. <laughs> like fully, it really I mean, feels that way. You know, in the yeah. mix of all these Godard films, like yeah. Godard films, I was like, this really yeah. feels more like verite. On that yeah. spectrum, or if that is a spectrum, where do you see yeah. your films? Well, like, yeah, I do think that the world we live in, I mean, maybe it's not the same aesthetically maximalist as my films, but I mean, I'm trying to make films about the present, yeah. not some like fantasy world yeah. that's not the present. I mean, they're reflections, lyrical, grotesque, heightened versions yeah. of it. There's a Baroque maximalist hype, but that world we live in is like literally about hyper accelerated you know constant consumption of media in the most impoverished way and I'm trying to like in a way heighten that to some sort of poetic quality and yes it's grotesque but also there's a beauty in the grotesque the art can capture contradiction and paradox and that's what's special about it it can literally capture opposites in the same thing Mm -hmm. and I feel like that's a lot of the things I'm attracted to are contain both attraction and repulsion within the same image. You yeah, know? Yeah. Like those shit posts that I have, like which are captivating, hypnotizing and horrifying and beautiful all at the same time and uncanny yet banal romantic and profane and sacred, you know, all, yeah. all the classic high and low. Like that's what the dead mall is so beautiful. It's like a sacred yeah. haunted space that's also the most banal 
space. You can but liminal also, space. But also, like, why some of the mid-journey, any of the, like, GBT3, like, yeah, text we and haven't even stuff gone is into so that. That's a whole... crazy, right? I mean, you don't have time <laughs> on this time, but... But no, it, I like mid-journey. Yeah. I like mid-journey right now, or, like, AI image generation right now, because, honestly, they're already there. We just... The future's here. It's just not yeah. evenly distributed. Soon, these AI-generated images will just look like photographs and right. they'll lose that expressive, grotesque mm, magic. Right. So I think it's really important to capture this moment where it has that quality of like Bacon-esque quality yeah. of like that... Primordial goo or yeah, something. I mean, yeah, it's just like, it's, it's a mind fuck right yeah. now. And like you can instantly recognize what the image is, is but when you look closer, it warps your perception because it is a machine eye. It is a machine brain still at work. So yeah, I, that, I very much feel like these AI diffusion algorithms are able to capture that kind of quality of imagery that is that grotesque and beautiful, the abject yeah. and the highest form of beauty I still can perceive <laughs> right now, all in one image. It seems like a ragged edge that creates a little bit of a buffer from this clean PMC styling of the world. Like totally. There's just totally. It's something that's very truthful about yeah. these images mm-hmm. and that they're ragged. And it becomes, I mean, this again is a whole other conversation, which I wish we can have. It's like, what is it going to do? It's an, again, another technology like the photograph was and, you know, what the industrial revolution was to the guild system. What is it going to do for, especially for the yeah. concept artist and illustrator? Yeah. It's literally going to destroy those professions yeah. and, it, and it already started to. So like, what's it going to do for any image maker, even an artist who like, you know, they're just trying to make beautiful image, let's say, which is fine, you know. But if I can make a beautiful image in three seconds with this, that's right. just that's maybe I think is way more beautiful than somebody who's yeah. trained their whole life. You know, what does that mean for image making? That's true. I mean, they also feel like, especially for counterfeit posts, because counterfeit posts addresses this like porousness of reality right now, where there's all these leaks between reality and the simulation, even things that are, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, like reified into being real or truth, you know? Counterfeit post being one of John's works. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. But it's like, you know, you can imagine how the Dolly text-to-image prompts work is that we consider all the image sources as coming from different subjectivities or something. They're all of these things mashed together and they are this Mm. grotesque like the picture of a egregore maybe in yeah, some exactly. way. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. It's it, a collective like right. animation or something. And, and Absolutely. I, I think you're right. Eventually it'll they'll look more real, but they'll be less truthful of what the exactly. actual process driving I mean, them that, will be. Yeah. For me, that's like the core thing that I aim for. And I think that the artifice, virtual worlds like Second Life, which is very points towards its own artificiality is more honest than something that's like clean and hiding the reality by like just claiming to be the real thing. The second you're selling yourself as the truth, as like 100% the truth and this is reality, then you know there's something fishy going on. That's right. that's why I like these fringe cultures, which are not don't have those rough edges or just are like unadulterated, showing the desires and fears of our society just so honestly and brutally. That's what I'm most excited by. Fan art, you know, (laughs) deviant art. This is like deviant art art mixed with uh, the Bible. That's That's, right. that's, That's what I'm about. Like I always, I've been thinking about recently the Cartesian theater a lot. Like yeah. that image of like there's a little guy inside of your brain, like a little uh, you uh-huh. sitting yeah. on a couch with like a projection uh-huh. screen and speakers <laughs> who's like kind of controlling like the, you know, <laughs> watching the you that's happening outside. Yeah. But like with the screens, it's like we've literally set up a Cartesian theater. Like that diagram is actually the Cartesian theater was always this recursive thing. Well, isn't there a viewer for that yeah. viewer and that viewer? Yeah. But now it is like very much like. We're a little guy sitting in front of the Cartesian theater window and setting up and controlling this external image and self and person that's navigating this other world, which I find is really strange. I've just been thinking about that And so Counterfeit Post is like a diagramming of various characters, like various different subjects in this Cartesian theater. One of the characters argues that eating dog is completely fine. Like she's like a typical millennial. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's nothing wrong with eating dog. You haven't seen that one yet. No, I haven't, yeah. yeah. 
there's longer stories that have like a poignancy that have a little bit more of a pathos. And then I mix that with bathos to kind of the classic back and forth between that I think you know, every, you know, even Shakespeare uses, right? Between yeah. in his most tragic tragedies. So this is an argument that's similar to why it's okay to eat dogs. Uh, <laughs> I know necrophilia is disgusting, but is there anything wrong with the act itself? Obviously, it's disgusting to me, and I never do it. But is it morally wrong? I really don't know. If someone died and all their loved ones consented to it, what would be wrong with it? I mean, you might get a disease, but there's consequences to a lot of things we don't consider morally wrong, like drinking. It doesn't hurt the family inherently and doesn't infect anyone else besides yourself and would maximize your happiness if you were a necrophiliac, right? Can someone sell me on it being morally wrong? And that's the question for everybody on the Discord. Uh, another thing I want to tell you, little internet, I think your writing, when you were like at the height of weird Twitter, was capturing a lot of the images I'm trying to capture visually in my work. And I feel like that mind was tapped into, in a way, some egregore universal consciousness of the internet and amassing all these signs and symbols that just like, you know, float around in an historical content, yet have this mystical esoteric quality. I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but like, what were you tapping into there and how come you stopped <laughs> writing? And do you ever consider returning to that maybe in like longer form or? It's a, well. Or I'm, was that like a person, like Bob Dylan says, you know, he'll never be able to like return to the poet he was when he was in his t early 20s. I think though it was like all of, all of weird Twitter sort of like fell apart. I think. Yeah. It's almost like something about that Lovecraftian internet humor mode reached some kind of limit or, or end, I guess. I mean, I guess drill is still going and stuff like that. But it was a habit, I think. And it's like yeah. a script that runs in your mind and it has to run 24-7 or you don't catch the But there was something the there that I feel like, yeah, I agree that every thing like that eventually reaches its logical conclusion or exhausts itself. But then you can take that and turn it long form, you know? Right, or do you think the inherent nature of it was like a short form mm, thing? I mean, I think I've been trying to dip back in with some of the radio yeah, plays so and stuff I've been let's doing. Do some, so let's yeah. do something like psychedelic like well, that. Oh, yeah. okay, great. I'm <laughs> yeah. super, super down. Because I feel like that, you know, when it, it wasn't one-liners, which so much of Twitter, right. I mean, which so much yeah. of just, you can, that's the, my favorite you know, writers on, you know, in the weird fiction world and even on the height of frog Twitter, I think there were some writers who were like less into the whole alt-right ethos and more yeah. into just like crazy, beautiful, on the level of lyrical poetry, right. but with references to juggalos and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, yeah. the, the post-industrial yeah. landscapes and, yeah. the, you know, what's more haunted and powerful image than like a parking lot? in front of like a dead outlet store you know that's the I mean yeah, sure. yeah seriously <laughs> I'm gonna have to dip yeah. guys alright thank, thank you, you so John thank you. we'll see you later thank you for listening to the New Models podcast and thank you John Raffman for joining us if you're in Berlin this fall, you can see Raffman's shows IRL at Gallery Spruth Magers through November 12th and at the Schinkel Pavilion through December 31st. In the meantime, we're getting ready to launch a new limited edition New Model shirt, a collaboration with artist Tobias Spichtig in the coming week. And we have some collective devirtualizations currently in the works. So keep an eye out because our dead mall is coming back to life. As for Ricky Backtrace, I'm working on it being our next release. But either way, we're back next week. See you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by Lil Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com.